This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good morning, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be unto you. My name is Julius Allen, and I am the president of the Muslim Student Association here at Moraine Valley. I want to thank you all for being here this morning. I also want to thank Troy Swanson and the library for hosting this event today. I also want to give a special thanks to my advisor, uh, Michael Morshis, for being here with us today. And um, the Muslim Student Association is dedicated to, put it, to sponsoring events like these because it gives us an opportunity to define our own faith in today's day and age where our faith is often defined for us. The MSA is dedicated to creating avenues of understanding, and events like these are just are just one example of just one example of the things that we're committed to doing and presenting uh, you you all here today with uh, uh, understanding what we're all about, and uh, we're just very dedicated to uh, presenting you with these type of events. So we're very thankful to be here. So um, this is our sincere hope that all of you here are comfortable, and we also hope that you help us to create a more constructive dialogue. So we're very um, happy uh, for you all being here. Thank you very much. And without further ado, I would like to present the Imam and Associate Director of the Mosque Foundation, Mr. Kifa Mustafa. Thank you. Okay. Hello, everyone, and salam alaikum. It's always a pleasure to come back to Maureen Valley and uh, share with you some thoughts about Islam. And today we have. What, 40 minutes, something like that, Julius? Less, more, okay. To speak about Islam, and I'm going to follow up through a PowerPoint in which we will elaborate on every slide in a way that we hope to simplify the term Islam, what it means, and I'll be more than glad to take questions at the end of the session if I need to clarify anything. So, with that being said, Islam is a monotheistic religion, which means we do invite people to recognize, believe, and worship one God. And when we go through the pillars of faith, that includes that Muslims believe in heaven and hell, do believe that God brought down revelation on prophets and messengers, which means that he has chosen prophets and messengers to be sent by him to deliver the message. We do believe in the existence of angels. We do believe in what we call the um, predestiny, the uh, fate that rules everything, which is all based on the wisdom and knowledge of God. With that being said, Islam is not a religion that is meant to be to a certain people or certain race. It's a universal message that Muslims are from all over the world, and it is something that I can just relate with 
calling people to believe in one God. And with that, it means everyone is equal and everyone is the same under this God. There is no preference but by piety or righteousness. And there are clear references from the Holy Quran, which is the holy book for Muslims, and the tradition of the Prophet, Prophet Muhammad, to speak directly about Islam does not differentiate between people on the basis of race or gender or color or anything like that, but rather it's all about how much righteous deeds and piety they can acquire. This picture you see now is a picture of our mosque, the holy mosque in the city of Mecca. It's called the Kaaba. It's that black room right there. It's covered with a black sheet. It's called the Kaaba. That's where Muslims, when they pray, direct their prayers toward it. And the reason I brought this picture, you can see how many people are performing the prayer over there. It's around 1.2 million people that are hosted in every prayer over there. And that means that you can see people from Asia to Australia to Europe to, uh, you know, uh, here the States, if it was to go specific from Chinese Muslims to uh, Moroccan to... Uh, Turkish to whatever, you know, from any part of the world, you will always see people performing prayer with no differences, and especially in one of the five pillars that I will elaborate a little bit shortly, which is called pilgrimage or hajj, people are all dressed in one type of garment. So also the concept of everyone is uh, the same. It's also seen through the way they look. They are looking the same. And this is just some pictures to tell you that we have Muslims that might be, you know, from a Caucasian background or African-American or even African or, um, you know, Southeast Asian or Middle Eastern, Arab, uh, Turkish, Chinese. And this is something that even here living in the States is a blessing by itself that you can see all these types of people, uh, different in religions also, but also you can see the same diversity in Islam here in the States. So if you go to any mosque, which is something probably Muslims might not see. I'm from Lebanon originally. If you go to Lebanese mosque, you're going to see only Lebanese. But praying here in Chicago in any mosque, you're going to see Muslims from all over the world. It is the diversity which America brings to the world. It's also reflected in the congregations where people perform. And you don't need to be registered in any mosque. It's just enough for you to be a Muslim. And then you can go in a mosque, you know, if it was in China, as I said, or in Los Angeles, or even here in Chicago. 1.7 billion is estimated for the Muslims around the globe. 57 countries with Muslims as the majority over there. 22 of them are probably Arab countries. And uh, this is something we need to differentiate. Not all Arabs are Muslims, and not all Muslims are Arabs. Actually, Arabs are a minority in Islam. They are like between 18 to 22 percent only. And uh, you don't need to speak Arabic to be a Muslim. You only need to memorize a few verses of the Holy Quran, which is in Arabic, to be able to perform the prayer, and then that's good enough. You know, for example, Indonesia alone, of, or, or Malaysia, or the Chinese Muslims, or in India, we have hundreds of Muslims, of, of Muslims over there. And uh, Indonesia, I believe, is the biggest country where the number of Muslims are over there, and none of them speak the Arabic language although they uh, focus a lot on the Holy Quran, studying it, memorizing it, and it's interesting of how many people, even at a young age, in which their mother tongue is not Arabic, but they do memorize the Holy Quran by heart, one generation after another. It is a growing religion in the U.S., estimated to be 7 to 8 million, 
And it is, as we said before, it is of a different ethnic backgrounds and national, uh, you know, backgrounds. Uh, this is just a, a clip or a slide about uh, something I want to say. Uh, many people, whenever they go to colleges, you know, they study about the dark ages and then they jump into the Renaissance, skipping a huge era in which knowledge was transformed by the Muslims and the Arab in particular to, to preserve such knowledge. If it was in algebra or chemistry or geometry or engineering or astronomy, uh, Muslims had their input in that and now... Some uh, universities and colleges are being fair and, you know, exposing this and making it part of the curriculum in which students are able to learn and benefit about how Muslims throughout history were able to add, like any other nation came, and had their share into science and all its uh, reflections. This is a picture just to tell you how would a mosque look. So, the first one, which is in black and white, uh, this is the first mosque actually built in the U.S. It's in Iowa. And now it's a histor historic site. Actually, a few years ago, there was a big flood down here in Iowa. And it was hit by that flood. And then they had to do some renovation on it. I think it was built in 1914. Many Muslims migrated prior to the 1900. Actually, uh, there were more than 100-some people of the Lebanese and Syrian descent who died on the Titanic, if, if people go study and learn. There are many people who might have been Christians as, as faith or uh, Muslims, but probably of Arab uh, background. Uh, we are in the Black History Month. Many black Muslims uh, brought from, you know, uh, Africa into slavery over here, and they were Muslims. And if you study and put some time uh, investigating that, you'll find that many of them were Muslims in origin. So a mosque, you know, would, might have a minaret, a dome, uh, something of an architect, you might go into any church, most likely Greek Orthodox churches, you know, they have domes and things like that, so you might see some similarity. But because of the ways, you know, people are living here now, you might see a mosque which is rented in a place or like just a small, you know, in a, uh, for example, uh, in the neighborhood, like a, a small store turned into mosque or in a small uh, neighborhood where it's just a small place or big. It depends on the community how big or small it is as a size. Back to Islam. Islam means uh, two things. It means peace and it means submission. So whoever submits to God shall find peace. This is a simple term of reference to the word itself. But it also Islam means to submit meaning to accept that your way of life will be in according to that which pleases God. So, peacefully, willfully, knowingly submitting your free choice and voluntarily to obey God's divine uh, uh, guidance. And with this being said, we believe that you need to learn about Islam through the main theme, God or Allah. What is this God? Whom do we worship? What are we talking about here? When we study about God in Islam, we study about an entity that is defined through attributes and names. Around 99 names were mentioned in the Holy Quran. So we don't know the exact entity as a physical approach of trying to see God or listen to God or, you know, try to approach Him through our senses. It's more about using terminology in the language that describe the level of perfection that God is in. So He is the Almighty, the All-Knowledgeable, the All-Knowing, the All-Wisdom, the All-Powerful, the All-Hearing, the All-Seeing. Things like that. These 99 names uh, describe God only in levels of perfection. 
So God would never be deaf. God would never be blind. God would never be unable to know what's going on. God would never be vulnerable to the system that he made. So he would never be a human being in our way we look at God as he is. Or he would never be like, even when people say God is with us, he is with us in his knowledge and his caring, not like literally he is with us. And although some people might believe that God is an uh, object, if it was even an animal or a human being or uh, even an abstract or something like, you know, the clouds or something like that. We don't believe in that. We believe God does not fall vulnerable to the system that he made. So he will not be a human being or a rock or a cow or a moon or a sun or even a human being. That does not uh, reflect the term how we understand God. In relation to names, it doesn't matter, you know, language. Uh, God will not uh, hold people responsible for what name they call him by in relation to their own language. They can refer to God in any way they want. So whenever we say God, we mean Allah. Whenever we say Allah, we mean God. And as a matter of fact, the term Allah is mentioned in the uh, Christian uh, Bible, which is in Arabic. You know, if you go to any Arabian country, there is a lot of Christians over there. So when you open the Bible, you see that the reference to God as Allah, which is close actually to the Hebrew and the Aramaic language, which is between Eloh and Elah, uh, close to the origin. That's all coming from the same uh, linguistic, you know, preference. And then it can go to uh, translation from Yahweh to Elohim to Dios to Jehovah and so on. But whoever refers to the one, the creator, the sustainer, the maintainer of this universe, then we're talking about God and we're talking about Allah. No gender. Even when we use the term he, we don't refer to him as a masculine versus feminine. It's just in reference to the language. Uh, no mother or father. We don't believe again that he falls into the system of the creation. Uh, no children, of course. And no part of this creation. Uh, he is uh, one in his entity and beyond our imagination to describe him through the type of life we are living in. He made this life, so he's not part of it. Muslims do believe in complete oneness, absolute, pure monotheism. God has no equals, no partners. But the most important thing is that when we worship God, we don't reach to him through a third entity. We don't pray to Muhammad to get us to God, or we don't pray to Jesus to get us to God, or to some angels, or to some priests. We do believe that it's a direct relationship between the servant and his Lord. And that's what means that there is no God but God, which means that he should not be worshipped but himself, no, no one else with him. So we praise no one but him. We believe that he has power over all things, and everything is dependent on him. He is not dependent on anyone. Now, you'll hear a lot of Muslims talking about everyone is a Muslim. We don't believe like everyone is the practicing Muslim, the way I understand it. We believe everyone is a Muslim in the terminology that everyone submits to God. Meaning that you don't choose your parents. You don't choose the place of your birth or the color of your skin. So, in that linguistic terminology, submitting, everyone submits to God. Everything that is made is in a status of submission to God. We believe that human beings were given the area to make choices in life, to choose between good or bad, and upon that they were given this free choice, freedom of choice, and that's what makes them different than angels or animals or anything else. We believe when they make the uh, choice of worshipping God alone, they had fulfilled 
the total meaning of submission as Islam represents. Since humans were made to make choices, and probably some of these choices might be bad or evil, God did not leave humanity without a guidance. So he decided to reveal to them books. These books represent a way of life, a law. We do as Muslims recognize that God revealed a book on Moses, the Torah, a book on King David, the Psalms, a book on Jesus, the Gospel, and a book on Muhammad, uh, the Holy Quran. And we do believe that by origin these were all coming from God, but we also believe as Muslims none of these books are preserved in the original text but the language of the Holy Quran. And the way this was preserved is that Muslims take much honor in memorizing the whole text by heart. We are now in the generation number 33. So if I memorize the Quran, I would be certified from my teacher, my teacher from his teacher, from his teacher, from his teacher, and 33 generations to the companions of the Prophet, to the Prophet himself, to Angel Gabriel, to God. So we believe that this way of preserving the holy text made the Quran protected from any changes. We are reading exactly the text that was read 14 some hundred years ago. And this is something that we believe it brought more authenticity to the interpretation of the language that you are dealing directly with the words of God rather than dealing with the translation of a translation of a translation and between the origin and what you have between your hands. Now, these books were revealed on prophets and messengers that are chosen by God to receive the text. Some of them received texts and some of them were just prophets who supported the presence of messengers among them. What's the difference between a messenger and a prophet? A messenger who received a new uh, text that will call people to a prophet who lived with the messenger or came after him supporting the message that came prior to him. This is a verse in the Holy Quran that speaks about the number of prophets and messengers we believe in. Just few of them say we believe in God and that which was revealed to us and that which was revealed to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob and the tribes and that which was given to Moses, Jesus and to the prophets from their Lord, we make no distinction between any of them and to whom God we submit. So a Muslim does believe in all these. And we believe that these are human beings. There is nothing holy about them, including Jesus. And I'll talk a little bit later about Jesus. We believe that they were honorable people. God chose them to receive the message. And he communicated with them through revelation, bringing down Gabriel on them. And then they took the honor of delivering the message. They did it, they finished, they died, they did their job, we love them, we respect them, we follow them, we look up to them as our role models, but we don't worship them, nor do we look at them as, you know, uh, some sort of um, uh, connection between us and God, uh, in a way that uh, it is said to be or meant to be as a worship. So these are the four books that I mentioned, the Torah on Moses, the Psalms on David, the Gospel on Jesus, and the Quran, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon them all. What do Muslims, you know, believe about Jesus? We believe that he is considered one of the great messengers that were uh, sent by God. Actually, we believe that there are five most honorable ones among the many mentioned. There are around 25 mentioned in the Holy Quran. The five most honorable to God, we believe, are Abraham, Moses, Abraham, Noah, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Peace be upon them all. Now, we do believe that he was born miraculously from Virgin Mary, that we believe God sent angel Gabriel, the spirit, a ruh, 
and he breathed into uh, Mary, and that's how she was pregnant by Jesus, and then she gave birth to him. His birth was a sign of God's choice about him being chosen as a prophet, as a messenger, nothing else. And we do believe in uh, no divine or holy entity about Jesus. In the Holy Quran, you will see references about him as the son of Mary, the servant of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the sign of God, but not God. And all that, we believe that God is holy, divine in his entity, and everything else is outside him as far as the entity of God. Everything is a servant to God in that, in that matter. Now, what about the last messenger, Muhammad, as the one who was sent, as the last person? We believe that he did not come out of nowhere. He came actually to fulfill the same message that was sent into phases. We believe the last phase of the same concept that everyone should be a servant to God. Muhammad was the last one to be chosen to deliver that message. He is the seal of the prophets. He was known to be the honest and the trustworthy prior to him being chosen as a prophet at the age of 40. Of course, he was born in Mecca around 570, descendant of Ishmael. And he received his first revelation as we said at the age of 40. And he died around 632. A just regular man. Uh, he was with a noble message. Uh, he was a warner to the day of judgment. He told people to believe in God. And we believe that he uh, exemplified the Holy Quran. If the Quran was the text. If the Quran was the uh, uh, reference the way of life and, and words, then the prophet was the one who lives that text and gives you the example of how to interpret the text in a way that is to be in harmony with that which God wanted us to understand. Some of the references in the Britannica, you read a mass of detail and the early sources show that Muhammad was an honest and upright man. Uh, Bernard Shaw, an Irish poet and philosopher, said, he must be called the savior of humanity I believe that if a man like him were to assume the dictatorship of the modern world, he would succeed in solving its problems in a way that would bring much needed peace and happiness. Michael Hart in the Time magazine uh, made this reference among the hundred most influential people in history. He said, my choice of Muhammad to lead the list of the world's most influential persons may surprise some readers and may be questioned by others, but he was the only man in history, who was supremely successful on both the religious and the secular levels. Some of his wording, some of his traditions, some of his sayings is that there is no, God has no mercy on one who has no mercy for others. None of you truly believes until he wishes for his brother that which he wishes for himself. He who eats his fill while his neighbor goes without food is not a believer. Many of these references are, are, are uh, collected in the term we call the sunnah or the tradition. It is anything that the Prophet said, did, or agreed upon. So as Muslims, we look at two references. The Holy Quran and the tradition of the Prophet. We believe both of them, the meaning is from God, but the words of the Quran is from God, and the words of the Sunnah is from the Prophet, in the human uh, terminology. With this being said, these are the six pillars that I just summarized a little bit. Muslims believe in God worship Him alone, Muslims believe in angels, Muslims believe in the books revealed by God, we believe in prophets and messengers, we believe in the day of judgment, and we believe in destiny, that everything is known by God, and everything is wished by God, and monitored by God, and He is behind everything, He is knowledgeable about it. 
And people sometimes confuse between if God knows and if God wishes things to happen, why am I going to be responsible for anything, you know, the, the choice between you and God. Think of it to make it yani, simple about, uh, let us say, I own a Walmart and I know every item in that Walmart. I'm the one who put it on the shelves. And I gave you $100 and I told you, go shop. So although you're not going to shop anything but that which I put, but you're going to make the choices. So... To God belongs the mighty example. Although He made this universe, but He gave you the ability to make choices. So yes, He is in the supreme control. He is the one behind everything. But yet you make your choices and upon that you are liable and responsible. Now, with these six pillars of faith represent what Muslims believe in. But then that is taken into action. It's not just, Islam is not just a theory. It's not just like an idea. It's a way of life. So you take the idea, you take the knowledge and then you bring it into real life. The first thing is that someone should declare himself as a Muslim. We call it shahada or the witness. And it's very simple. Uh, anyone who wants to embrace Islam, he just needs to say, I bear witness, there is no God but God, and that Muhammad is his messenger. And that's about it. We don't do any rituals, you know, we don't do anything. It's, it's very simple. But this statement is meant to, to represent that which you believe in. It's like, you know, anyone taking an oath or making a statement representing himself it's very simple, but uh, people are urged to learn exactly what it means and then what comes with it as far as liability and responsibility of uh, actions that are to be done, which takes me to number two, the five daily prayers. And I urge anyone who's not a Muslim to go, and I, I have many students come almost on a weekly basis, you know. Uh, they always go, they, we give them a chance to watch the congregation in prayer, they take notes, and then we sit down and we breathe them in something more fast than this. And then we take their questions. So, if you have a paper that you need to do about, you know, comparative religions or, you know, world religions, whatever, and you choose Islam as your choice, you are more than welcome to come and visit us at the Mass Foundation. It's just here in Bridgeview on 92nd and Harlem. The prayer is something that takes the concept, the idea into action. And although we pray all day long, we say prayers when we eat, we say prayers when we step outside from the house, we say prayer when we meet our friends or when we see the stars or whatever. But these are the actual physical prayers that you let everything go and you de dedicate such moments, five to seven minutes, and you stand in a certain position facing Mecca and there's a simple wash you do before you stand for God to be in a status of cleanliness you cover your body in a way that you respect the honor and the uh, moment that you are to communicate with God. And then what you do is that you read and recite verses of the Holy Quran in that prayer. It starts by saying God is great, which means that if I can feel God is great, then I should not focus on anything else. He is the uh, main uh, item of, or, or main theme in my focus. And then you re read, you know, parts of the Holy Quran and then you bow down and then you prostrate to the floor. And through that you say words of gratefulness and thankful to God and you praise God in that. These prayers are in relation to time. And time was uh, measured in relation to the movement of the sun. So we have the dawn in the morning and then noon at exactly when the shade is like 90 degrees, you know, with an object. And then we have uh, the afternoon which is if the length of the shade is equivalent to the length of the... If you put a stick lattice outside, and the length of the shade is equivalent to the length of the object itself, the stick, then that's when the third prayer times come. And then the fourth one will be sunset, and the last one will be 
late evening whenever there's no more red, you know, uh, color in the sky from the sun. Of course, no one is going to go outside now and start putting sticks and measuring things. It's all apps on your iPhones and Android and all that. It's all you can just uh, one click away. It's all calculated now on calculation. This is the type of wash that you do. You wash your hands. You gargle water in your mouth. You clean your nose, your face, and then your hands, and then you wipe on your head, and then you wash your feet. This was at a time when people fought for water in Arabia. And, and this was at a time when the term hygiene did not exist. So Islam really brought a total a new wave of understanding life that is all about cleanliness and it's all about the garment and the body and the thoughts and everything and the values, everything should be clean. So this takes me with the time left to the third uh, pillar of what we call Islam, charity or zakah. It's two types, one obligated and one voluntarily. The obligated is to give 2.5% of your savings per year to the poor. Now, this is not tax money to the government, nor it's a donation to the mosque. It is money, let us say you saved, and it, it goes by, uh, you measure it by an 83 grams of gold, which is now around $4,700. Uh, this was the amount that was assigned by the Prophet. So, let us say you have a savings per year of $5,000, it's $125, which is, you know, 2.5%. If you have $10,000 of savings, then it's $250. And then it goes up like that. For every $1,000, it's $25. So you go look for the poor people in your family members first. Of course, your parents, your children are exempted and your wife because you are responsible for them. So you cannot give them the, the charity. If you use all your money to serve your parents and your wife and your children and you don't have the 5000 savings, you only have $1,000, then you don't have to pay zakat at all. You should be fine. And the second one is like, you know, a donation. It's up to you. you. You can donate to anything, you know, an orphanage, building a mosque, or sponsoring, you know, an event, whatever it is. It's your free choice of that which you want to do. This takes me to the fourth pillar of Islam, which is fasting. Now, Ramadan is a lunar month. In Islam, we have a lunar calendar, like the Chinese, in which uh, six months are of 29 days and six months of uh, 30 days, a total of 354 days which makes the lunar calendar for Muslims around 10 days or 11 days shorter than the Gregorian calendar. So if Ramadan fell, let us say, this year in July 15th, so next year take out 10 or 11 days. It will be like July 4th. And then the year after that it will be like, for example, uh, June 20-something. So if you live 33 years of fasting, you would have did fast every single you know, uh, season of, of the whole year. So it's not fixed. At a time, you, you fast sometimes very short days if you're in December, around 10 hours, and then you fast long times, if like it's coming now in July actually this year, it's going to be around 16 hours of fasting. Now, people who live in the North Pole, in which sometimes they have six months of light and six months of darkness, of course that does not apply on them. They just estimate the max number of hours that the scholars approve someone can maintain is that you should not exceed 18 hours. So if you reach 18 hours, and even if the sun is over there, then you can break your fast, it should be fine. And as I said, some parts of the North Pole is about six months of total light. Uh, fasting means from dawn every morning of Ramadan till sunset, there is no food whatsoever. You can't even you know, smoke or uh, eat a gum, no liquids, even drinking water, and no sexual intercourse. All that is prohibited throughout the whole day until 
sunset and then you break your fast, you go back into normal life, into the dawn of next day and then you start all over again. Uh, there are special things that we do in Ramadan. Uh, people are urged to invite as many people to break fast with them and offer food to the needy, gather as family. It's a very social month that people really meet each other. But next to that, we have extra prayers that are done during the month of Ramadan. The five daily prayers throughout the whole year is an obligation. But in the month of Ramadan, people are urged to come every night after the last prayer is done. And then they read the Holy, the Holy Quran again. So they try to read the whole Holy Quran every night to keep it, you know, live, like recited every year. And this is just a picture of people praying that. Uh, we do celebrate festivals, and we have two. One comes after the holy month of Ramadan. It's called the uh, festival of breaking the fast. And one comes after pilgrimage. And uh, during the festival, we, uh, you know, perform a certain prayer. This is actually a stamp that is sold now in the U.S., at the time when the stamps were 33, this is an old picture, you know, what's now, 45, something like that. So, uh, to celebrate the Eid, or the, the term festival is Eid, and people visit each other, you know, there's a special, as I said, uh, prayer done, but it is a social gathering in that perspective. People visit each other, family, exchange, you know, gifts, and so on. The last pillar, which takes me to my last, uh, you know, couple slides, uh, it's Hajj, which means when you direct your attention towards something, Every Muslim, upon capability, health-wise and financially, is supposed to go once in their lifetime to the city of Mecca, pray in the major mosque over there, Al-Kaaba. And what we do is that we walk around that masjid or that mosque seven rounds. That's exactly what Abraham and his son Ishmael did. And of course, the Prophet himself, Muhammad, peace be upon him, did that later on. And what we do is that we, we try to live the same moments of submission that Abraham and his son Ishmael and Prophet Muhammad lived trying to praise God. We believe that they were the one who raised this uh, building up. And when they were done, they walked around it thanking God that he gave them the ability to raise this building up. So we go over there and we do the same thing. We walk and we thank God for that chance. Also, we walk between two small hills in which the wife of Abraham, Hajar, walked between them trying to look for people for help, uh, submitting to God after God told her husband, Abraham, to let go of her and join his second wife or his first wife, Sarah, in, in Palestine at that time. So she accepted the test and she was left alone with her son, Ishmael. So we again walk these you know, steps between what we call the mountain of Safa and the mountain of Marwa, trying to relive also the moment of submission. We also go to a place where Abraham, we believe, when told to slaughter his son, and we believe that he was told to slaughter his first son, which is Ishmael, not Isaac as Muslims. We go over there and the same way Satan came to Abraham and tried to convince him to quit on that act because the revelation came in a dream and we believe that prophets do not have bad dreams or regular dreams. All their dreams are revelation from God. So Abraham to you know, keep away from Satan, he picked up seven pebbles and he threw them at Satan you know, uh, at that time. So we go again at that same place where we believe he stood and we repeat the same action throwing these seven pebbles, again, trying to live the moment of submission and sacrifice that the whole family of Abraham had to go, had to go through. This is another picture of the uh, masjid or the mosque, uh, the Kaaba in, in the city of Mecca. And now I believe there's a new construction going on. They are planning to make it host seven million people. 
So all this building around it is now being demolished actually and this space is going to be just wide. It's going to be a, a huge expansion. It will take a few years but you know Muslims around the, the world actually uh, they have to go on a raffle sometimes to get the chance to get a visa to go to Mecca because of the demand. And some countries, like put it also, you have to be over the age of 45 to be even chosen. Like there's no chance for you if you are young because of the demand of the elderly. And sometimes they go between, you know, young and, you know, and that. But uh, it is a place that is the most visited. I think the second most visited is Las Vegas. <laughs> so... I'm not sure if that's a true statement, but, you know, uh, I think it is Mecca as the most visited place on, on earth. So this was my brief presentation about Islam. You know, we can have uh, sessions and sessions. This was just a very fast one, but it is meant to uh, bring some light on the basics. If you have any questions, uh, I'll be more than glad to take them. If you don't have any, then we can be able to wrap it up. And thank you for listening. And this is my point. Thank you very much. <laughs> any questions? It could relate to the topic that we spoke about. It could be general. Yes, sir. I'm sorry? Zakat does not have to be real money only. It depends on what business you're in. If you are a farmer, then you can give the zakah or the charity from the whatever you are, you know, planting or harvesting or something like that. If you are in cattle business, then you can give like sheep and goats. And it depends. But nowadays, you know, money is the currency that is, you know, uh, most dominant in the world of financial means. So, yes, uh, you can give it in other means. Yes, sir. There are exemptions in Islam. And exemptions are based on five areas. One, uh, sickness. Two, traveling. Three, hardships. Four, if you are forced on. And five, unpreventable situations. Like, you know, something that is it's hard to step out from it. It just became the norm. And, and all these five themes, exemptions of your excused from this or excused from that applies under these five themes. For example, if you are traveling, you don't have to pray on time. You can delay the prayer or combine it. Or if you are traveling, you don't have to fast. Or if you are sick, you don't have to fast. If you have a back pain, you don't have to stand for prayer. So part of the excuses or the exemptions that the Prophet gave to make it easy on Muslims is that if you clean yourself for the first prayer in the morning, let us say, and you put your socks on, then the socks must be thick enough for you to, to consider it as a, um, applicable for that uh, excuse or exemption to be applied. Then, let us say you lost your uh, status of cleanliness by using the washroom. When you go wash again, you don't have to take off your socks and wash your feet. You can just wipe on the upper part of your leg one time, and that should be sufficient. And it goes for the next four prayers. So if you wear a sock for a whole day, then whenever the fifth prayer comes, you have to take it off for cleanliness issues and all that matter. Yes, the sock should not be thin 
because if you're going to touch your feet and the water is going to be running right there into your feet, then it's rather just wash your feet. It will be better. At the time of the Prophet, there were no regular like cloth, you know, fabric type of socks. They were all made from uh, skin, like skin of goats and sheep and stuff like that. So the scholars relate the condition that it has to be as thick like a, a skin. So the water would not penetrate them. There's too many points of view, but this is the most uh, you know, dominant one. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, first, even in the Sunni school, there is the madhab or the school of thought by Imam Malik, Maliki, who put their hands down. They don't put their hands up. They are main, main like in Sudan and Chad and some parts of Africa. They practice that um, Mauritania and, and other places. And all the differences between the schools of thought, if they are among the Sunni schools or the Shia schools themselves, it's all based on how they verify the authenticity of the text of the Prophet. For the text of the Prophet to be considered a hadith or a, or a narration, a tradition of the Prophet, it has to maintain five conditions. Number one, that you, can, you have to prove the chain. That X met Y met Z met A, you know, the, the scholar who is narrating the text, he has to prove that if there were seven people in the chain, that I heard it from this, from this, from this, from the Prophet, he needs to prove that these people met each other. That's condition number one. Number two, he needs to verify that they were all upright people. If any one of them was known to be immoral or doing acts of uh, prohibited things, he will be dropped from the chain. And the third one, all of them will have to be sound in their memory. That if they reach the time on their Alzheimer's, or if they were too young to narrate, you know, a, a hadith, it'll be like drops. Number four, uh, no one who is declared to be strong in his narration, another one should not contradict a level which is stronger than him. If, if someone narrated something with a stronger person in narration, adopted as the strongest, narrate something under it, they will drop the other person. And the last one, that the hadith, that the text should make sense too. If there was a hadith that the Prophet said, if you feel uh, stressed, go and throw yourself from a cliff, for example. Right away it will drop from the narration. Of course, under one of each of, of, of these five, you can go into how do you declare someone sound in his memory? And how do you declare someone is good Muslim? So with that, you have so many different points of view. So that's why... A hadith here will be sound and good to someone, authentic, and some will say, no, this is not on the level of authenticity that I accept. So that's what makes the scholars make different rulings in relation to the authenticity of the hadith. That's one. Number two, in relation to language. Language can be interpreted in so many different ways. So anyone who wants to be in the business of a scholar, he has to master the Arabic language, to be able to make the narration exactly to what the text means. If someone comes and say, uh, the term Ayn, for example, you're in Yemen, you know Ayn. Uh, Ayn could mean an eye. And Ayn could mean a well of water. And Ayn could mean a spy. And Ayn could mean 
the eye of the door. And ayn could mean the core of a substance. I mean, you, you can t- pick up ten meanings of the same words. So you need to be this much advanced in the language to relate, is this really what the text and the phrases that has been made in the text? So with this, you will have these differences of people praying. Even as soon as some people go like that, some people go like that, some people will, you know, indifference. But and the major differences between the sect as a Sunni and the sect of a Shia, the Shia add a term to the main basics of belief that Sunnis don't believe in, which is the concept of imama. That they believe there are holy 12 imams chosen by God, and they are the legitimate leadership of Islam. And that whoever came other than them is not legitimate. The mainstream Muslim Sunnis believe that Anyone after the Prophet is under the umbrella of consultation, shura. People elect whoever they want. There is no holy, inherited leadership in Islam. So that's where we differ on a, on a doctrine. And, and the reference of the simple things, it's the school of thought that looks at the authenticity of the text of the Prophet and to the language and that terminology. I, I hope you... Sure. Any other question? Okay, we can go have lunch. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Take the mic. I want to, I want again, want to thank Shaky Fal Mustafa for coming out to give us a presentation on Islam. I want to thank everyone here for coming out today. I want to thank Troy Swanson and the library again for hosting this event, and uh, our advisor Michael Morshis. Um we want to invite you to uh, more MSA events. Uh, we have another event going on on March 20th. It's called Uncovering While We Cover. It'll be about Muslim sisters explaining why they do what they do uh, regarding the hijab. So definitely look out for that. It'll be March 20th uh, from 12 to 1.15. Also, we have Muslim Student Association meetings two days a week, uh, Mondays and Thursdays, Mondays from 2.30 to 3.30, and Thursdays from 2 to 3. So if you can make those days, that would be great. We're here. Uh, we're here on those days. Uh, the, uh, U211. Sorry about that. In the U building, U211. So definitely we'll love to have you. And thanks again for uh, coming out. Take care. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.